This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Over the weekend, as well as enjoying the kind of beautiful mild weather, I have been reading the most remarkable book on Australian history since, I reckon, since Bill Gamage's groundbreaking Biggest Estate on Earth. Uh, The book's called Deep Time Dreaming. It's by author and historian Billy Griffiths, who's woven together the story of archaeology in Australia from the mid-20th century and how it interacts with the reassertion of Aboriginal identity. Uh, He describes the first professional digs and how the invention of radio carbon dating enabled researchers to trace indigenous colonization of this continent back 60,000 years and uh, thank you so much for coming into Triple R Billy and thanks for your book Uh, I've really enjoyed it uh, and I'm already recommending it to people but they can just start getting it today I understand. Um, They can indeed today is the the, the release date. And uh, so maybe we can just start with the title and the concept of, of deep time. Yes, um, so the title comes from, well, really the core, core uh, argument of the book is that when we look at the last 230 years of Australian history, we have to do so in the context of 60, over 60,000 years of human experience on this continent. So this book is coming in, uh, about coming to terms with that deeper story. And, uh, and deep time is, uh, is a wonderful phrase to, to describe the immense scale of time, um, that the thousands of years, scale of thousands of years at which archaeologists work. Um, it was coined by John McPhee uh, as a twin to deep space. And like, like its twin, it demands we leave behind the world we thought we knew uh, in order to, to uh, go beyond, to confront a world beyond our understanding. And the early, I mean, I suppose we can just, let's talk about archaeology in Australia because in the mid-1950s, so mid-century, where were we at? It wasn't really, um, I suppose... A, a sort of a profession in the in this, the way that we understand it to be today, as it was practiced in Australia. Right? Yeah, it was it was really the domain of stone tool collectors uh, in the mid twentieth century. Those who who um, collected surface tools and and, and confounded Aboriginal culture with the, with the, the tools they they left behind. Uh, it really picks up with I open the, open the book with the work of John Mulvaney and Isabel McBride in the nineteen fifties and sixties who who began excavating sites. So they, previously uh, there was this prevailing assumption that um, Aboriginal people were timeless people in a timeless land and, and, and people, stone tool collectors did not dig because they did not think there was anything to find. So. And it's quite an extraordinary concept that at that time when someone said, and I think it's both, both of those um, archaeologists that you speak of, both experienced people saying, well, what are you excavating for? What are you, there's nothing there. Yeah. How old is anything on this continent? You know, and this concept now is maybe baffling to, to now that we know that, um, you know, we have the oldest living culture on earth here in Australia and we can trace right back to 60,000 years. But at that time, people just had no idea. Exactly, that question. What is and didn't fear? want to, like a willful ignorance almost. Mm. What is their... Well, yeah, also, it's just even, even um, the most socially aware Australians were subject to these same kind of structures that marginalised Indigenous culture and made, made it hard to, hard to grapple um, with, with uh, the history of this continent. So uh, that's what Stanley used, his, um, uh, described through his, uh, his top words about the Great Australian Silence, this, this overcoming, this, this silence about... Indigenous uh, history, and uh, uh, but it meant the early archaeologists like Isabel McBride, who was uh, confronted with this question: "What is there for you to, for you to do here?" 
uh, from her colleagues as well as her uh, uh, the people she worked with around New England. Uh, it meant that a lot of what she was do- uh, faced with um, was uh, community outreach as much as excavation. So she had to introduce concepts of cultural change um, and antiquity to lay understandings of Aboriginal Australia. Because in the 1950s, it, there really was this idea that uh, people had been here only a few thousand years, perhaps as long as a couple of that, if that. And uh, we've gone through this, this dramatic time revolution of the last few decades, which has pushed back uh, Australian history to uh, now, now 65,000 years. It's coming from the, the, the oldest date from last year. Uh, which makes it um, older than, than, than the history of Homo sapiens in, in Europe at 45,000 years and much older than the Americas. Uh, so there's a remarkable history on this continent and it's, and it's been a transformative history. This it hasn't been 65,000 years of the same environment um, or, or, the, or the same cultures. It's, it's incredibly diverse and ever-changing um, uh, history. Um, so while, while people have been here, the, the sea level has risen not one or two, but 125 metres. Uh, so you once could walk to Tasmania and to, to Papua New Guinea, uh, and you could... Uh, p- people have watched as, as uh, lakes have dried, volcanoes have erupted, dune fields have formed. This is a, this is a remarkable history of, of transformation and resilience, uh, and it is uh, a history that is, is still so new, still so fresh, um, in, in our minds, we've, we've really only st- we still are coming to terms with it. And I want to hear more about these um, characters that you write, and these um, you know really important archaeological figures in o- Australia. But what drew you to this story, Billy? Yeah, well, I've always been, um, as a historian, I've always been uh, uh, drawn to uh, understand the history of, 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 of Australia and, and, and this continent. As I write in the book, Australia. I'm, I'm born of the conquerors, um, as Judith Wright would put it. I, um, my family goes back a few generations here, but uh, uh, Australia still is a country to which I feel a, a deep affinity, but um, to which I'm still learning to belong. So this was part of the reason I ca- became a historian. I wanted to learn the past and character of this continent that I love. So about six years ago, I got involved in a, uh, an, an archaeological excavation in Arnhem Land. It was a remarkable opportunity. I... Um, uh, was invited to, yeah, this, this, this site which is called Majibebe, which delivered us this date of 65,000 years uh, last year. Um, but as a historian, not an archaeologist, I was, uh, had to earn my place as the camp cook. Uh, so I worked, uh, worked on site during the day, so by day I would trawl through these ancient kitchens and by night I would cook for a team of hungry archaeologists. And that was a remarkable experience, you know, working on Mirai land, um, in grappling with this this incredibly uh, deep history, and it's a beautiful site and a decorated rock wall leaning out from the Arnhem Land escarpment, looking out across the Magella floodplain, uh, it, uh, it 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 drew me into a world of um, of wonder when you're thinking on that huge scale of time. But also, I absolutely became fascinated with the the contemporary com- political concerns of our hosts, the Mirror, who were fighting. Uh, against uranium mining on their land and they're mobilising this deep past in, in the political present in, in fascinating ways. And I imagine that the, the sort of process of being able and permitted to, to dig and to excavate on such a site now, um, that, uh, that process would be quite different to, to the early excavations that John Mulvaney um, was involved with down at Fromm's Landing. Maybe you can sort of talk about that because on one hand he was incredibly sensitive in comparison to those that came before to the land and, and the culture but didn't really 
have any connection to the local Indigenous community when he started to excavate. Yeah, he, he didn't uh, know how to reach them, didn't, didn't even think, cross his mind to, to, con- to consult with them. Um, and that speaks again to these broader structures I was talking about earlier. This is the, the revelation that Aboriginal people survived the invasion hit archaeology hard and hit, hit historians hard too. And, and, um, and, and over the 60s and 70s, they, they made their voices heard. At uh, Fromm's Landing, um, which is now known by its Indigenous name, um, Naranjo name, uh, Tangawa, uh, from, uh, John, um, he, he dealt with the people who possessed the site in his eyes, uh, which were the, the, the landowners, the Fromms, and he sought permission to um, excavate from them. And, and he also, there were no structures uh, to, to uh, manage science at that time. He was, he was, he, he did, there was no rule book for him to follow. He had to arrange for this heritage that he was uncovering to be protected. Um, and he arranged for the artefacts he was, he was excavating to be t- uh, taken in by the South Australian Museum. Um, so it was really pioneering work, uncovering this history, seeing that this was not just... Uh, uh, there, was, there was a dynamic history of, of cultural and environmental change that he was uncovering on this, on this riverbank. And he had to sort of change, again, sort of throw the rule book out or what, what there was and change people's perceptions, this idea of the sort of stratification of, you know, you had one group of people and then other people came and then you sort of laid on top like what might have happened in Europe. But here he was starting to realise there was a continuous and changing culture that he was uncovering rather than something that was stopping and starting, which, um, again, we probably take, we take that knowledge for granted now. But then it was new concepts. Yeah, he was breaking out an evolutionary frame of thinking, uh, which uh, thought of, of uh, different um, uh, tools representing types of people and, and instead came with, with more of a historical frame to, to, to look at how these changes in the archaeological deposit were communicating social changes and, 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 uh, and adaptation over time. So uh, he, he found immense continuity and, and archaeologists today still find this incredible continuity, but there's also change there too. And I'm shy, I shy away from this idea of the um, uh, oldest continuing cultures, which is a fantastic a, a statement of cultural pride and identity. Um, but it, it takes us back to dangerously back to that when when it when re- repeated as 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 history it takes us back to the the stone tool collectors of the early 20th century and, and earlier who asserted that there was a, it was just a static a period of static time where there was no change it was just timeless people i think there was immense continuity but there was also great change transformative change it's a really fascinating book that looks at really the pioneers of Australian archaeology uh, uh, going back to the 1950s and beyond. And I suppose we can sort of kick forward a few years and, and have a look at um, the first organisation that was set up for Aboriginal studies at the ANU. Tell us a bit about that time because it was a period where people were becoming quite worried that um, sites were being trashed, uh, not respected and ran, ramshacked and ramshackled. Um, and, you know, people were not respecting or appreciating what was there in the landscape. Um, tell us what, what happened at that time. Absolutely. So the, through these institutions that were, these individuals that went out and, and started uncovering the evidence of ancient Australia, uh, they were weren't sure what to do with with all the what they were what they were um, uncovering. You know how how were they? What were, where were the, where were the laws to protect this heritage? They they saw it as something that was 
incredibly important to protect and, uh, and, and, and a, a major part of Australian history and heritage. And uh, uh, so they worked to create these institutions like the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies, now Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, IATSIS in Canberra. Um, and these institutions became these fascinating um, centres for uh, not only to negotiate heritage legislation, which, which emerges um, in, the, in the 60s and 70s very rapidly, um, but then also to uh, become debates about broader questions about ownership and, and power. Um, so uh, IATSIS, uh, Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies, um, becomes a centre for uh, Aboriginal people to protest this, uh, this, this, um, this institute that was speaking um, for them without them being part of it, and they're now fully part of it, and, and that is the shift of control we've, we've seen um, in, in, the, in the discipline. And at, at that time, um, because it became a bit of a lightning rod for people, you know, communities around Australia to say, hey, hang on, um, we're not involved with this and you're coming on our land and looking at our sites. Uh, and we saw at that time, and you write about uh, local communities saying, we don't want people to come to certain sites. Mm. And that really has, has that sort of set... Um, the tone now for how archaeology is works together with local Aboriginal communities and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia? Yes, yes. So the people I write about in this book, this book is about the archaeologists that uncover the deep past, but it's equally about the Aboriginal leaders who who uh, are, search for, a con- for control of their own heritage and, and, uh, and then become involved in, in shaping research agendas and, and uh, how, how it's really about how this, the field of Australian archaeology has been enmeshed with the past half century of Aboriginal political struggle. So today there is some, some amazing collaborative partnerships that are ongoing um, uh, all around Australia. And uh, this, this is uh, a... a uh, this has been a long um, and and often turbulent journey to reach this stage, and at the moment it's a confrontation and collaboration. And I write about some of the the mistakes along the way, and 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 the the, the, the changes that have happened in that time. But very much so today, there is uh, enshrined in the Archaeological Association's code of ethics is this sense that Indigenous Australians have complete control over their own heritage. And uh, the deep past speaks to a broader human heritage, but it's not not a non-Indigenous person's a place to to um, to speak for that. And it's interesting how um, archaeology does over time become enmeshed in political movements of a broader scale, like the the saving of the Franklin River. Mm. I tell that story because I was I didn't know that. Um, is it? Um, Kutakina, um, a site there on the Franklin River was part of the prevention of the Hydroelectric Commission at that time going ahead with the dam. Absolutely. So this this, this amazing site, Kutakina, um, was uncovered in the middle of the Franklin River campaign. Um, it was actually found by the first director of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, Kevin Keenan, a caver, um, who was looking for a big whiz-bang cave that might uh, uh, help the campaign to stop the damming of these beautiful um, valleys in, in the southwest Tasmania. And uh, he didn't realise at first what he'd found. Um, it wasn't until he returned a few years later with Bob Brown and with Bob Burton, um, again from the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, that they realised that what was inside, the artefacts that were inside were in fact human-made. 
Um, and that initiated this, this uh, period of archaeological investigation in, in Tassie, which, uh, which revolved around the Franklin River Valley caves. Um, and the story that, that, that they uncovered is, again, remarkable. So it, it clashed with this, this wilderness ideal that was being put forward by the conservationists because what was supposed to be the, this timeless, pure uh, landscape of, 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 of a wild landscape, untouched, pristine, was in fact telling a deep human history. And the, 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 the forests of ancient Gondwana land, um, this, this rainforest, had retreated at the last glacial maximum, they had retreated to the river valleys. And what was um, now rainforest was then an alpine herb field, uh, similar to that which you find in Alaska or northern Russia. It's, so it took away the, the, the wind out of the conservationist sails uh, a little bit. Um, and yet still the conservationists, together with the Tasmanian Aboriginal community leaders like Michael Mansell and Rosalind Langford um, and, uh, and archaeologists uh, uh, like Rhys Jones and, uh, and John, John Mulvaney combined to, to fight to save this site. Um, and, and that, I, I argue, was played a decisive role in the campaign. So it, it, uh, while the wilderness um, society uh, really made uh, the groundswell in the, in the, ele- during the election to kind of um, get people to do that incredible writing of no dams, uh, it was the, the archaeology that uh, played the, the pivotal role in the High Court case, which ultimately stopped the damming of the Franklin in uh, July 19. 19- 83. So I understand this book has been of making, what, six years or so yeah, of research? So, I mean, it's very it's written in such a personable way and there's so much personality um, within the writing, but also we, we get to kind of know these archaeologists. Mm. And uh, how did you do that? Like, what did you find on the public record to enable you to, to bring so much to this book? It's been an absolute privilege to work on this history. It's, and it's, it's such a young history too in, in many ways uh, although I'm talking about deep time uh, it, uh, the past half century it means the main, many of the main players are still alive and um, and I've had the chance to, to talk with them um, and, uh, and and that's been a, a wonderful experience uh, to, to, to talk with them but then also to look at their archives in national institutions national library um, and uh, then to travel to the places I write about I think that's so prof- uh, important um, for me, in order to write about a place, I need to go there and understand it. And, and so the, the, the book comes about because of all the, the intellectual generosity of the Australian archaeological community and then all these conversations I've had with traditional owners and with, with archaeologists and ecologists and geologists over the past <laughs> uh, few years. And I really hope that the book will open the kind of conversations I've been embarking on um, uh, to a wider public. So we, we, we start to think about the history of ancient Australia as uh, not just a timeless and traditional foundation story, but as a as a deep past and, and, a, li- and a living heritage. And that's what you want people to get from it. That sort of yeah, similar sense. Absolutely, and 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 at the same time, with what we've had over the past few, half century is this, is this political struggle, which has culminated, you know, led through the Mabo and Week decisions, um, the the apology to stolen generations, and now has has culminated in. Uh, what I see is a very profound um, statement, one of the most important documents in Australian history, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, which has draws on archaeology, and that archaeology features in all of these natural national conversations, and and calls for all Australians to to um, 
look, reflect on our past through a, through a truth-telling commission, as well as a Makarata and an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So I, uh, I really hope we can rise to that call, and I'm, I'm very disappointed that we haven't yet, and I think Turnbull's deafening silence on the subject is is a betrayal of us all. Yeah, and the silence continues. But I wonder, um, I suppose, if we look internationally, what has, I suppose, the Australian word brands overused, isn't it, but that brand of archaeology that has been developed here, what has it offered the rest of the world, do you think? Well, it continues to confound expectations. I think that's that's the uh, interesting thing. And, and, And a lot of the archaeological discoveries, even in recent years, still haven't filtered into the the Northern Hemisphere debates. Um, there's a, a resistance to understanding what, what, what we're learning from the Southern Hemisphere, from Australia, from Southeast Asia. And uh, this new date of 65,000 years really factors into, to, to changes the way we think about out of Africa, not, not dr- drastically, but it shows that um, people came out of Africa very quickly south into Australia um, and the voyage, first Australians were voyagers too. So then they came across here they had to cross a, 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 um, an area of water of 100 kilometres wide um, to a land that lay beyond the horizon. That required a uh, that's uh, an immense set of of skills that we can't see elsewhere in the archaeological record. So, in some senses, it's uh, people regarded as the the first true archaeological evidence of um, of, uh, of Homo sapiens outside the remains and. Um, so there's, there's so much to be learnt from Australian archaeology and, and I, I hope that the, the world will, um, uh, will continue to, to open their eyes to it. And uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the first person to kind of talk on, on radio about your book with you, Billy, but um, you're going to get this question. Uh, what's next for you? You've got this book out, <laughs> Deep Time Dreaming. It comes out today. Um, it's via Black Ink. Um, have you got another book up your sleeve? Is there another chapter to write for this one or...? There After are many more else? chapters to write yeah. for this one. Absolutely, it, this 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 uh, field is is still um, evolving, and I'd love to continue to write about uh, how we how Australians are coming to terms with the deeper story uh, of of archaeology in Australia. So I'm I'm signing up to a few field trips coming up, and and hopefully I can continue on this way. The, oh, the next book might be a little way. <laughs> <laughs> Six years, maybe. No, um, it's been great to have you on Triple R. All the best with the book, Thank and. You. Um, Hopefully it's received very well and I really enjoyed reading it and I will continue to read it. Um, Billy Griffiths, author and historian, Deep Time Dreaming, Uncovering Ancient Australia and Out Through That, fantastic publishing house, Black Ink. And music and hearing, they absolutely go together, but too many musicians and gig goers don't know how to tell if they're experiencing music-induced hearing loss or not. And um, this condition uh, is totally preventable, but leads to permanent hearing loss if you don't look after hearing. And it's something that musician Siobhan McGinnity knows all about. She's founder of Musicians for Hearing. She also wears many other hats, a clinical audiologist. Siobhan also plays around town as magnets and lectures in musicians' hearing care and tinnitus at the University of Melbourne. And uh, you're also three years into a PhD um, project, Siobhan, researching hearing in the music industry. So um, this is your thing. Uh. Please send help. I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> so how at risk are musicians um, to hearing loss? Uh, we're learning more and more that they are quite highly at risk. I think one of my 
uh, favourite studies that sent it home for me was one that reported, reported sorry, 74% of musicians in the rock and pop industry had a form of injury. So it might not be hearing loss, but they could be experiencing tinnitus or their ears feel blocked all the time or dullness or distortion. So there's lots of different ways that your ears can be injured without just having a hearing loss. And it's not just people that work with sort of amplified music, is it? Like people in classical musicians can also be at risk. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely can. And, you know, when we first started researching hearing loss ages ago, we always thought it was symmetrical. But then we realised that's because we were testing people exposed to factory noise. But if you look at someone like a violinist, they might have more hearing loss on the left side than the right side or a drummer who might have a hearing loss more on the left side than the right because of the positional state like of place of their instrument. So, yeah, it can affect anyone in any form. Yeah, and so, I mean, I suppose we, I, I think we all get that every now and then sound mm-hmm. in our ears. I don't know if I'm now <laughs> talking about myself and um, other people don't get it. But, I mean, what are the kind of early signs if someone feels like they've gone to too many gigs or, I don't know, pumped up their headphones too loud for too long. What, what are you sort of looking for if you, if you think you might be experiencing hearing loss? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And it can all come back to seeing your ears like any other part of your body and recognising that they get tired. So ears can get, you know, overworked and worn out because they were made for the jungle and not for an urban city. So when you get symptoms like... You know, your ears might feel dull the next day or that you have a bit of ringing or you feel like you can't hear as well. They're signs that you've overworked your ears in the previous environment. So you might have listened to a really loud gig or had your earphones pumping on the train. So typically the best form of medicine is to give them rest. It takes about 24 to 48 hours for them to recover as much as they can. So whilst they are feeling those signs of fatigue, give your ears a break let them rejuvenate before you re-enter the space. Uh, I've just got a question. So when you hear that ringing, I don't Mm. know where I read it. Um, Can they be repaired or is that a permanent situation? Like are you hearing your ears deteriorate when you're hearing that ringing each time? Like after, as you said, the morning after when you've been to a gig? Is that yeah, a deteriorating I, <laughs> situation or is it repairable and you'll are be okay? Stu- are we stuffed? Basically? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You're not stuffed. Everything is fine and we are ah, fine. Calming okay. mantra. <laughs> but, but absolutely, I get um, a lot of people telling me this absolute myth that when they hear that ringing, it's the sign of that pitch dying for them and they'll yeah. never hear it again. <laughs> and that's absolutely not true. But uh-huh. I don't know how that got out into the world and a lot of people believe it. It's probably the easiest way to think of, especially after noise or music exposure, is that you basically completely overworked your speaker and you've kind of blown a fuse and the body is amazing and can repair that in 24 to 48 hours, but you kind of got to give it time. So there's lots of... Yeah, I don't know if that's technical enough. I can go no, further if you want yeah, to. But it, it sounds really interesting. And I, I think, I, I suppose I understand in factory-type settings, Siobhan, that, you know, we really have strict rules now of protecting people's hearing and people mm. need to have all the gear, et cetera, et cetera. But what about in the musical environment? If you are a musician uh, and you're working, it's your job, are there such rules yeah. in that environment? So... There are and there aren't. Music kind of is a 
blank space of legislation. It comes under factories, and so it's completely different to that, as we know, but those laws were written so long ago that it's kind of in this realm where we're not really sure. But when it comes to, you know, say, employees taking care of the... I'm sorry, the employers taking care of their employees, by all means, they've got a duty of care to make sure that their employees' hearing is safe. So, you know, providing earplugs when necessary. Um, and that can be really simple. You know, foam earplugs are a dollar. They're, they're not expensive at all. But when it comes to patrons, then you get into this whole field of conversation around choice. You know, we don't ever want to restrict people from enjoying loud music. I mean, it triggers the same area of our brain as sex and good food. Like, we love it. So we need to maintain respect of artistic license, but also make people aware of their own personal limits and when they should probably take action. And so, but you, it can lead to permanent hearing loss as well. So this idea that, yeah. you know, if you if you go out and look, you're just having such a good time and you come home and you're ringing, have a break for a bit of time, uh, maybe it's not permanent, but if you don't take preventative measures and you don't rest up, it can lead to permanent loss. Is that is that sort of the story? Yeah, that's the nutshell of it. Uh, but, you know, it is, I guess, the footnote is all of those temporary injuries. So every time you injure your ears, you hear the ringing or you hear the dullness, they actually make you more susceptible to having hearing loss later in life. So while, or, you know, more immediately, you might find in 10 years' time that you start to notice speech and noise discrimination really difficult. So you're in a pub and it's not as easy to communicate, or you start to get sensitive to loud sounds. So, like, all those temporary injuries do lead to functional change in the long term, but you just don't notice them for, say, 10 years, so you don't worry about them as much. Well, people tend not to. Yeah, that's a concern, isn't it? What are people asking you most, or what are you kind of educating people about in your lectures on musicians and hearing at at the uni, Siobhan? Uh, this lecture is uh, devoted towards audiology students, so I guess it's about empowering the next wave of hearing specialists on how to see a musician and not say for the first you know, second of their appointment, oh, so you've got a lot of noise exposure. It's not noise. Let's not disregard, disregard the musician at the very start. And then also <laughs> how to take care of a musician working in a very dynamic environment. You know, we all come from different instruments, different history of, you know, training and practice and rehearsal rooms. Having the skills as an audiologist, some some of them don't even know what, you know, the skin of a drum looks like. So you really need to try and educate them so that when they talk to a musician, they're empathetic and understanding and know how to help you guys take care of yourselves. And so you're lecturing to audiology students. Do music students get lectures in audiology as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hit and miss. That would be wonderful in the future if that was a part of every three-year course and it blows my mind that, you know, you could go through a three-year music degree and not have an hour devoted to this is how the ear works, this is how you keep hearing music for life. So, yeah, some do, some don't. That would be great though. Yeah, what about the culture? I suppose um, you and Holly both can talk to this. What about the culture in bands um, these days, I mean, is is hearing and protecting hearing a big a big part of the conversation, Chabon? I might throw that to Holly first. What's your experience? Uh, I think so. I think, uh, for example, in venues, I guess it's for patrons as well, but earplugs. I was saying to Carly earlier, I'm not sure if it's just that I've 
become more aware of my hearing and protecting it as I've gotten a little bit older um, than I was when I was younger. But I do have younger bandmates who take care of their ears, actually. So I think there, is, there has been growing awareness of ear protection amongst musicians, uh, from what I've that's, seen. That's yeah. really encouraging. Oh, that okay. that yeah. makes me happy. <laughs> cool. <laughs> have I, you I noticed it too? Um, yes and no. I think if I am noticing it, I'm, I'm like an artist right up against the painting because I'm working hard on it, so I can't really see those micro changes and I often read articles or general reports written in the 90s that say 50% of peers would look and frown upon their friend if they wore earplugs so like I read about the stigma all the time so I think you know hearing Holly and others talk about it being seen as positive is really encouraging to me but I think I'm aware that we could be living in bubbles when I look at the big data and see how many people's minds we've got to shift still. Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose if people are experiencing symptoms now or really have the dreaded tinnitus, which I I understand is just quite full on to live with, uh, Mm. is, is an audiologist where people should be going for support? Yeah, it's a great first start. With tinnitus, you should always go and see an audiologist to get your hearing tested. And your barometer of whether or not you've gone to one with the capability to help you is if they tell you, you've got tinnitus, there's nothing we can do about it. Or if you leave with a management plan and they've helped you walk away feeling like there's things you can do to get on top of it. So a tinnitus specialist within audiology should help you leave feeling like, yep, this is what I've got, but these are the five things I can go and do to investigate how I can make this better for myself. Yeah, and you see more and more people taking kids to gigs, which is fantastic, and there's those kid headphones that people have. Mm. I, I mean, that that sort of recognises, I suppose, that if you're taking young people to those kinds of environments that you have a duty of, of care to them. But are children more at risk of, of effects of hearing loss than adults, or is that also a myth? No. <laughs> Is that, that, is that a myth? It always surprises me. <laughs> you know, you see kids, these parents being absolute darlings, putting headphones on their kids, and then I look at them and they're not wearing any. I'm like, but you've been here the entire festival, surely going much harder than they have. Like, could you take care of yourself? You deserve it too. Um, so, yeah, kids are at risk and they have tinnitus at rates just the same as adults, but we tend to take care of kids better at gigs than we do ourselves as adults. I keep keeping you too long, um, Siobhan, but I have another question and that is around (laughs) headphones because people really are plugged in much more than they used to be. Um, And, I mean, my phone warns me if I pump it up loud, which I often do, um, that I'm going beyond what they would recommend um, I do with my my headphones. So there are warnings in our devices, but uh, is there research out there about the effects of, of headphones and recorded music? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have the loudness wars of the last century and hyper-compression to thank for the fact that we now hear sound through our headphones often just, you know, everything's loud constantly, and that's because we've made it that way. But the best thing you can do with headphones to save your ears is to think of it in terms of background noise. If you have a lot of background noise seeping in, you're going to turn your music up so that you can hear it clearly, which means that you're going to increase the pressure on your entire ear system. So the best thing you can do is get headphones that cover your ears or fit molded 
they are noise cancelling or at least block out the background sound. And they've shown that if you use headphones like that, you'll listen to music almost 20 decibels softer, which is a ginormous leap for anyone in the industry. So if you want to listen to music through headphones, by all means, go do it. But if you're doing it on a regular basis, invest in something that discards the background noise for you. Fascinating. And uh, so you founded an organisation, Musicians for Hearing. Uh, If people want to get in touch with you, is is online the best way? Yeah, we're probably most active on Facebook at the moment. Um, But we have a website, musicians4hearing.org. We're updoing our website. So within the next couple of months, it should be live with a plethora of, you know, resources for anyone who wakes up one day and decides they need our help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. And um, sounds like we're going to hear from you again um, very soon. We'll see how yeah. these um, lectures go. And um, good luck with the update of the website. Thank you. Cheers for having me. Uh, musician Siobhan McGinnity, um, she's founder of Musicians for Hearing. World Hearing Day on the 3rd of March. Um, look after your ears, people. Uh, next month, South Australia goes to the polls and the South Australian Labor government seeking re-election with a policy of generating 75% of its electricity from renewables by 2025. The state's already at 50% renewables and with a big focus on storage, some are calling for it to go even further and aim for a 100% renewables grid. To talk more about this and other issues, um, all things South Australian, really, Giles Parkinson from Renewable, um, sorry, Renewable Renew Economy is on the phone, and it's great to have you, Giles. And I suppose seventy-five percent renewables by twenty twenty-five. How are they going to do it? Yeah, look, thanks for having me on the program. Um, look, surprisingly easily, actually. Um, it's one of those things that um, it actually looks, as, as you mentioned before in your introduction, uh, they're already at 50% renewables, you know, wind and solar. And there's so many um, big projects being constructed right now. There's a 220 megawatt solar farm being built near Port Augusta, a 212 megawatt wind farm, 117 million, 117 megawatt sorry, solar farm um, closer to Adelaide, and there's a bunch of other projects. If you think of the Wyala Steelworks and the UK billionaire Sanjeev Gupta, who wants to sort of green the energy um, source for Wyala Steelworks, you see that's a key component to making those um, old steelworks profitable in the future. So he's got a plan for one gigawatt of uh, solar and storage. So if you think about all those and some of the other things that are happening and the virtual power plant, for instance, they're probably going to get 75% by 2025 without actually doing too much more in the the, um, form of initiatives. I guess the important thing is is that there is the storage to go with it, um, up to about 40 and 50%, according to the studies from the CSIRO and the Networks Lobby and um, other experts, you don't really need that much extra storage brought into the um, system because there's so much backup that already exists there for you know, gas and, um, and coal plants. But once you get beyond 50%, you've got to start thinking seriously about storage. And we're starting to see that as well. Yeah, and um, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I, what I've been wondering is, would it be possible for South Australia to go this way without the national electricity market and being connected to it? Oh, look, I think they'll always be connected to it in the sense that there'll be um, poles and wires, there'll be those big two transmission lines coming from Victoria. And I think without that, then it would be really, really hard because then they'd have to really invest in a lot more storage and a lot more um, backup because that um, those that connection to Victoria is actually quite useful, as it is for every other market um, around the place. If you actually look at the figures for the last year, New South Wales, which has is the grid with the most coal 
percentage of coal of any grid in Australia actually imported more electricity from other states than any other state. So there's an interesting statistic. We often accuse South Australia of being dependent on Victoria coal, but um, the truth is that um, South Australia actually exports more into Victoria um, than it does import, and the biggest coal state in New South Wales actually imports more than any other state. And so storage, as you've alluded to, is kind of a major plank of this policy uh, as well as the generation. And, and we heard, you know, it's pretty much at the same time that German battery storage manufacturer Sonnen is going to set up in South Australia. And I suppose, tell us how significant this is. Well, I think it's hugely significant. It just sort of shows that the big players in the, um, around the world see Australia as um, one of the most exciting markets for storage. Is it Australia um, or is it South Australia? <laughs> well, look, in this case, it's South Australia so far. I mean, I think that they, 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 see, they see the opportunity for Australia, but I guess um, the South Australian government has been more proactive than any other. That's why they've captured almost half of the investment in wind and solar that's happened to, to now. I mean, everyone sort of blames, oh, well, they've had reckless policies and things like that, but all that actually said to people is that we're open to investment, please come and invest here. And um, they've really just been riding off the back of the federal policy. But in South Australia, we've already seen the Tesla big battery and that's doing, um, that's just been working fantastically. And that's really starting to change the thinking of the grid operators and the grid owners about how the grid look like in the future um, because it just really adds a whole new element into the way that the grids are managed and it's really quite exciting the speed and its versatility and it's a bit like the change over from analog to digital or landlines to mobile um, you've also got this virtual that uh, virtual power plant that Tesla's going to build in Adelaide, which is connecting 50,000 low-income houses um, with solar and storage. They won't actually pay for that up front, but they will receive the benefit of cheaper prices, and those batteries will then be connected to basically provide a resource for the grid operator to, to, to sort of provide network security and services and even capacity at times of, of peak demand. And um, then you've got Sonnen in another, yes, another initiative, and that's really exciting, um, uh, loans for more low-income households. Um, they're looking to um, support 10,000 um, installations. Um, and, um, and so they're excited enough about the whole opportunity to actually set up a manufacturing plant in Adelaide, and it'll be the first manufacturing, battery storage manufacturing in Australia. But um, I suspect it might not be the last. Yeah, and it's interesting to me. Uh, so uh, South Australia is really working with international manufacturers as they're kind of putting these visions into practice. And, uh, I mean, what, how is that going to grow the, the local market here, um, do you think, Giles? Oh, well, I just think the fact that South Australia is leading and showing that things can be done um, is incredibly important and should be inspiring to all other all other states. You think about what South Australia is doing. It's gotten to 50%, you know, wind and solar, and everyone says, oh, that's impossible, it's going to cause a calamity, the economy will fail, and stuff like that. Well, it hasn't happened. I mean, apart from the problems that we had last year, which was really more of a management of the grid problem, um, they simply failed to switch on a uh, gas generator when it was needed for peak demand. There's been no issues at all over the last 12 months with with wind and solar. Now we're starting to see, um, you've got the Tesla big battery coming in, showing how things can be done. You've got Sanjeev Gupta coming in and sort of saying, look, we can save the way LS steel works, but we can only do it with green energy, solar and storage, be that battery or pumped hydro, because that'll provide cheaper and more reliable energy, and that will reduce our costs, and we can keep this thing going. You've got Gupta also talking about possibly an electric vehicle manufacturing operation in South Australia. You've got some of the German people coming in and talking 
talking about um, manu- uh, battery manufacturing. You've got other people coming in and having this same view. So it's not just a couple of green years and left wingers thinking about this. This is major corporations, international corporations. This is the grid operator. This is the grid open owners saying that yes this this can be done we can actually do this we're proving we can do it in south australia and we can actually have a cheaper and cleaner grid that's actually smarter and more reliable as well and giles parkinson's with us renew economy is where you can find him and uh, i think giles is am i right in in um remembering that the federal uh, energy minister was in in South Australia when Jay Weatherall, the premier, announced this seventy five percent policy if he's to win next month's election. Yes, he was. Yes, and um, and do you and, think uh, that was um was accidental? <laughs> oh, look, I don't know whether it was accidental or not. But he seems to sort of run into it big enough from Jay Weatherall every time he is there, and of course he downplayed it and mocked them and ridiculed them and said it was just ridiculous and you know like a like a sort of um like a gambler who you know who can't stop. But um, look, I mean, what would you do? Um, do you actually tell Sanjeev Gupta not to build um his solar and storage and uh, basically sort of put the steelworks back into receivership? Do you stop these other um, solar and wind plants from being constructed? They're halfway through construction. They're going to have storage as well. Do you actually stop that? No, you can't stop that. You know, this idea that you can sort of sit, stand there in the corner and just shout loudly about some nonsense and simply stop progress is just just ridiculous. But Do you think Josh, Josh Frydenberg is able to have his cake and eat it too, though, in this in this regard, that he can criticise but also get the benefit? Well, look, yes, quite probably. Look, and to, uh, to a lot of extent, what he's doing is just sort of playing politics. He's got to plot to his own right wing um, of the Liberal Party. And unfortunately, because they, he has to play to that right wing of the Liberal Party and the National Party, and the, the, you know, the coalition, um, we don't actually get some really sensible policies out of them that um, we all know would, would work perfectly well and, um, and, and we could actually go forward. So, you know, yes, I, I think um, sort of... Again, <laughs> Yeah, you're right. He will reap the benefit from this because it just will shows what's possible in the future. But in the meantime, he's just got to hold this sort of party ideological line, which is really quite absurd because it basically sort of says new technologies don't work and we should be scared of them, we shouldn't embrace them. Um, you know, thank God we didn't take that approach when the vehicle was um, invented or when the phone line was invented. Um, but in the time we've got left, I'd, I'd love to get your views on the potential flow-ons for Victoria. Uh, so if, if we're going to see um, solar and battery systems go on to 50,000 homes, you know, social housing in South Australia. Is this going to bring prices down for uh, everyday consumers, do you think, with these kinds of systems? And I suppose, is that the direction we should be going? Yeah, look, I think it should do. So for the people actually involved in the scheme, it's going to cut their prices by around 30% because they're going to have solar and storage. And that's a really good thing. It will bring prices down for other people because then that's the resource that's actually used to counter peak demand. And if you think about the prices, the prices that people pay, almost all the prices that we pay, be it for peak demand for on our networks and peak demand for the wholesale prices, the two biggest elements of your bill, are basically geared around for those couple of days a year when the temperature's really hot and the prices are the highest. Um, so if we can find ways of actually doing, addressing those sort of needs in a smarter way and putting batteries in people's homes and linking them up and having things like demand response, they're all smarter and cheaper ways of doing things. And in the past, all we've done is simply build more poles and wires, make them more expensive, add new gas peaking power stations, and have a much smarter, much cheaper way of doing it than that. And, and distribute rooftop solar or battery storage, and having these sort of virtual power plants around the place 
a really good idea and I especially like the South Australian one because it basically makes sure that the people in the low income households, the people who haven't had the money to invest in, you know, the five thousand or seven thousand dollars or whatever is needed for rooftop solar, it makes sure that makes sure that they are not left out of this transition and that's really, really important. And it's a fantastic resource to look after. It just simply means a smarter way of doing things, a smarter way of financing it and making sure that everybody benefits. And I suppose um just lastly, what about for Victoria? Do you think that um we'll see the state government here having a look across the border? Look, I think so. Look, to Victoria's credit, they're the only state that's actually legislated their own state-based target. I mean, South Australia has always been aspirational and they've kind of met it because they've managed to attract the investment, whereas Victoria's actually put in, um, you know, they've actually legislated 45% by 2020. And for Victoria, where it's coming from and where it's going to, that is no mean feat. So that's pretty good and I think that's very encouraging. Um, it's going to be interesting to see whether they do adopt something like a virtual power plant. I think that'd be a really good idea, but there's lots of exciting things happening there within the um, like little mini grids and micro grids and various elements of battery storage happening in Victoria. Um, they haven't quite matched the South Australians' ability to sort of make a big deal out of it and uh, get Elon Musk to fly in and um, announce big things. But um, look, I think there's some um, important and exciting things happening there all the, all the same. Thank you so much for being with on Triple R. You, um, you needed to be out by 10 o'clock. It's uh, five seconds to go, so there you go. <laughs> exactly. Thanks very yeah, much. Pleasure to be online. Okay. Ho- Thanks for having me. Hope to speak with you again. Uh, Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy, and, um, yeah, he's writing every day about renewable energy and, I suppose, the initiatives there. And this morning, speaking about South Australia's announcement, the government there saying if they win the next election, which is coming up in just a few weeks, uh, they will make the grid there 75% uh, renewable. Uh, it's an aspiration target as Giles just spelled out and but they want to get there by 2025 that grid's already sitting at 50% and there's a lot happening also with regards to what's called virtual power plants where uh, the Labor government over there wants to put solar and battery systems on 50,000 social housing rooftops and uh, yeah so lots in that space and I'm sure we'll keep up with it on Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.